Metro, our regional government, manages parks, venues, and cemeteries, including the convention center and the zoo. Metro also facilitates garbage and recycling in the region, in addition to being a convener around various issues, including housing for this election season. The region is divided into districts, and District 5 spans North and Northeast Portland. Founder and Executive Director of Neighbors for Clean Air, Mary Pivato, is running for Metro District 5, and today Mary joins us to share why she's running and her vision for the region. Thanks for joining us, Mary. Thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. So, what should our listeners know about you? Well, you know, the world right now is literally shifted overnight. So when I launched my campaign, um, you know, in, in uh, early February, late January, I really wanted to continue the work that I've done every day for 10 years on environmental air quality advocacy and really address the bigger issue of climate in our, that I felt like we could, there's huge opportunity to do at the region. Um, I, you know, I think now is um, the motivation to run is stronger than ever um, because the importance of having strong, courageous leadership has never been more critical, and we're seeing that every day. And I, I still believe what I believed the day I started this campaign, um, that despite this current crisis, our, our region's best years are ahead of us, and this crisis will not be... Um, the measure won't be the crisis itself, um, but it will be how we address it and move through it. So I'm, I'm more committed than ever to run. I'm more committed to bring my strength as a, a community advocate and a, a um, successful uh, changer of the system. Um, I feel like I have a unique track record of success of breaking through really intractable divisions, whether it was at my neighborhood level with um, you know a steel refinery that had for decades the com you know the neighbors on the steel refinery had been you know impossible to find common ground or whether it was at the state level um, kind of the same thing breaking through you know decades of intractable divisions between industry and environmental advocates to move a diesel bill forward so I, I want to bring that same work that I've been as a consensus builder a coalition builder and and solve some of our biggest problems. So as you looked at the at the landscape and ways that you could take your advocacy to the next level, obviously there's citywide office, there's regional, there's statewide, et cetera. What drew you to run specifically for a position with Metro? You know, it was just so clear to me that Metro is the great opportunity to solve problems at the scale, the big enough scale of how they need to be solved. So if you're, you know, if you're trying to solve even homeless the homeless problem, the the problem of not enough affordable housing, or the climate, you know, it's very difficult to solve that at the city level. And we've watched the state government continue to to just get divided into, you know, partisan bickering that is not solving enough problems that it should be. So my sense was that that the housing bond that was passed in 2018 was just an excellent demonstration project of the strength of regional governance, that it can bring, you know, it can really bring the scale that we need to local problems and, and spread that out evenly and equitably across the region and really make headway. So I was thrilled to see the housing bond. I was, um, you know, thrilled to see the possibility of what we could do on climate 
addressing that through the lens of the transportation package that Metro's been working on. And I just, I'm, you know, I feel really excited. The other thing I really like about Metro is the way it convenes the conversations that isn't really about vote getting and the partisanship. It's more about how we come together and solve problems together regionally. Now, of course, especially now, Metro is in a really difficult position. It is a, a, a manager of several venues. Events aren't happening right now. So the path ahead is, is a tough one. What, but what excites you about this role? Like, What would you look forward to in this position? Yeah, that's been the biggest shift for me. I mean, you know, early on, I was I was really proud um, to uh, be given the Ask Me um, Local 580 uh, endorsement for this race for this candidacy, and I think that was because, you know, my values really align with the values of workers and working families and and um, living wage jobs where people can really thrive and be successful in our region. And that was all before this crisis hits. And now we're in a situation where it's clear that Metro employees are equally impacted by this crisis. Um, and in fact, you know, there were some really painful decisions made last week about layoffs. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be, as I, when I get onto the council, I'm going to be, you know, putting a really keen and strong eye on how Metro continues to make decisions around its employees and how we can learn from this crisis how we can be more resilient as an organization to emergencies in the future, and how we make sure that workers aren't always so disposable during economic crisis of this proportion. Mm. And those, those, I think, are going to be really important lessons that Metro can learn, but also can be learned, you know, region-wide and private and public sector-wide, um, as we really make sure that we are taking care of the the regrowth of the economy and the rebuilding of the economy, economy from a worker's perspective first. Mm. Um, I want to make sure, I mean, I'm going to be really making sure that Metro doesn't make, you know, bad decisions about how it re-employs and brings back its workers. Um, we're not going to use this as an opportunity to restructure, you know, contracts or, or standard practices. Um, and I think that we also need to be thinking about the workers that are still at Metro because they're there because they've been deemed essential, um, that they are still, you know, they're still moving our garbage, they're taking care of our transfer stations, they're workers at parks and public spaces. And I want to make sure that those workers um, really who are frontline are, are receiving the essential pay they deserve for those essential services. Yeah, you're referring to the massive layoffs that came through at Metro last week. Do you see that there was another path that Metro could have taken that didn't include such massive layoffs? You know, unfortunately, I really don't think so. I mean, we've closed, you know, Metro again is is in the business that so much of our local economy is in, in terms of community gathering spaces and service sector, and those places are just shut down. So again, I think that those really tough choices, we have to make sure that we're learning from them. But they they were choices that had to be made in that in the moment. Mm -hmm. And I do believe, honestly, that leadership at Metro, who was managing that, um, did a pretty phenomenal job to consider um, those decisions. And so it's really going to be about how we come back 
from this, those facilities are going to reopen. We are going to be, there will be a time when we're on the other side of this. And so we need to make sure that those employees that were displaced by this are the first in line to get those jobs when they come back. Again, we need to ensure that we're not restructuring contracts or employment agreements in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, I think uh, just like so many of our local businesses have had to make those really hard decisions, um, it, it was really unavoidable. Mm. And you've mentioned that you've played a, an instrumental role in fighting for clean air in, in Northwest. Tell us about Neighbors for Clean Air. You know, Neighbors for Clean Air grew out of um, sort of the, the realization of the, the, the gap in our how we regulate our air pollution, our, our most toxic air emissions, um, and where public health is protected. And so I think that it really, um, Neighbors for Clean Air came out of that sudden awakening where people realized that there was a big gap, that you know what was um, considered legal in our state uh, was not necessarily safe. And so we had to walk into, we had to create an organization to walk into a very local problem at the time when we started in 10 years ago, um, you know, I woke up one day after you know sitting on a computer looking for the farm to school lunch program and instead came across industrial air pollution in America's schools and found you know my neighborhood school Chapman Elementary School in Northwest Portland to be ranked in the bottom two percent in the nation. So with that awakening and um, and broad understanding in the community that that something was really really wrong, we realized though that the problem wasn't just local that it was a systemic failure of the regulatory system to be protective of public health. But in the meantime, you know, our regulatory system didn't want to shift overnight. And so what we also did was, you know, again, there, you know, broke through what seemed to be an intractable, you know, not moving discussion between the company creating the pollution and the neighbors. And we finally found some common ground with them and were able to negotiate directly with them because we shared, you know, I think we shared not a sense that they were doing something horrifically wrong or evil, but they were doing something that we were scared and we felt put us at risk. Mm. And we found a way to break through. We found a way to commit the company to $5 million in pollution reduction actions, capital investments in reducing pollution. And it became the demonstration project for the bigger failures of the system. And so it became also the platform for us to continue our work. And it took eight more years before the state was really ready to take on the whole regulatory system. But because of our experiences and it wasn't just Esco Steel. We ended up working um, in communities uh, out in Hillsborough with Intel. We worked with North Portland uh, communities around Swan Island facilities. Um, and so we were really ready and poised when when suddenly everybody was thinking about the way we were regulating industrial toxics to really have an informed opinion about where that could go to be more health protective. And so I'm really proud of the fact that we were able to get things done in the short term, but also be part of a, you know, a huge system change to move our air regulatory system to now have health-based standards um, in, through the Cleaner Air Oregon program. Mm. 
can you say a little bit more about how you made this happen? That description makes it feel really easy, and I hope that it was. But I imagine that there was a <laughs> lot of a lot of back and forth. There was informing neighbors to who then maybe joined in a coalition to then put forth a case to ESCO and other companies that this is really urgent and that neighbors are are really angry and frustrated. What were the mechanisms that brought both of these groups or all of this coalition to common ground? That's a great question. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's, um, it's, it was a combination of many things. I, I think one of the things that I learned early on about this work, and I, you know, I didn't come up from a any sort of environmental background or science background or legal background. I, you know, my, my background had been in selling athletic shoes um, and communicating, uh, mostly around the communication of selling athletic shoes. So when I approached this, I understood that it was fundamentally a problem. It was a communication problem. It was finding mm-hmm. understanding, finding common language. But I also, what I ha- what happened was I walked into what was arguably, and, and many people will support, the Clean Air Act is the most complicated environmental regulations we have. And so it isn't, it isn't a really easy thing to communicate about and create some shared understanding. But what I really understood was that we were, if you take you know industry on one side and the community on the other side, and frankly, even the regulators in the middle of that, we were all talking around each other. You know, the the community was basically saying, we're, we're, we're anxious, we're scared. We think that there's something wrong here and we're, we think that you're potentially putting us at risk. And some of us are feeling, you know, are having real physical experiences with that. And, and you know, industry is basically saying, you know, we're doing everything we have to, we are operating legally, and then the regulators were kind of saying the same thing, which is, you know, there's nothing we can do because they are, even though the regulators were also saying, there are really high levels of heavy metals in your neighborhood. So it was this thing that we were kind of all in our little camps and not finding that way to talk to each other and together and then as you as you mentioned the but honestly the real impetus and nothing happens especially on these issues of air pollution it seems without a huge community mobilization to make it happen and so there's also this huge burden on the community to break through those sort of hey we're legal hey you know the science doesn't support necessarily um, a strong case that this is doing harm and so the community carries this huge burden. Mm-hmm. So finding a way to bring the community voices in and demonstrate that there truly is agency in community experiences and voices in this, um, but also make sure that the community understands. I mean, we had to manage a lot of expectations and manage people's understanding. I think people felt like, well, if they're releasing you know, chemicals that are known to be toxic, there has to be something wrong with that. There has to be something illegal about that. And so they would get outraged when, you know, legal action wasn't taken. And the reality was, what I found out was pretty much air pollution, even if it causes um, known harm and death even, is a, pretty much 100% legal in Oregon. So you're not gonna, you know, you're not going to get very far if you just keep yelling and screaming like, you're 
you know, you're breaking the law. Mm-hmm. So it was really difficult to create you know, find a place where we could really talk and start to talk and understand. So one of the most important things for me in that was to get get the science and the the understanding of the regulatory system on the side of the community. And so we got to work with some really amazing uh, um, environmental lawyers from Lewis and Clark's Environmental Law Program so that we better understood the regulatory system that these these companies are operating in and and then we also started working with Portland State University researchers to really understand the limitations of all the monitoring and, and science and data um, and what it wasn't telling us about what was happening in our communities. And I think once we started creating some consensus, we could also then prioritize. You know, when we sat down with ESCO Steel to negotiate the terms of a good neighbor agreement, which, um, you know, was really about them installing pollution reduction actions, we needed to be able to really hear what the engineers could tell us would be the most effective and best use of money to do that. And so we were able to sit next to ESCO and make decisions on the prioritization of projects together. So I think we started out with 24 and they committed to 17. And that reduced pollution in some cases by 70% um, in some of the places that they were adding new technology and installing new um, practices. But, you know, you need to you need to share language before you can sit at a table and share ideas and, and come out with outcomes. Yeah. So it is really difficult. It does. It is a very, I think my strength is my ignorance coming into it because we needed to make this understandable to the mom with the kids who's just really worried, but who's going to then really be bought into the outcome of the reductions and the and the projects that we got, and and that created some I think finally some trust and respect between everybody. It wasn't that much different than you know what we ended up having to do in the state legislature in the 2019 session when we got our diesel bill. Um, again, we had to bring parties together who had not been together for over two decades to talk about, you know, there is a real problem here with diesel pollution. It causes the highest, it's the most deadly thing in our air. It causes um, significant negative health outcomes and disparities um, in our communities. And it's been there for so long and it comes from so many different sources. Mm-hmm. So how, where can we start? Where is our common ground that we can start to talk about this problem? And I am so proud that our work to get the diesel bill um, passed in the 2019 session in many ways um, represented even bigger breakthrough than the one with ESCO on reducing its pollution. Mm. This was, you know, these are entrenched interests that have not worked together for decades in the state capitol. And actually, you saw it play out. You know, these are many of the same interests that have motivated um, Republicans to walk out of the building. And we managed in 2019 to keep them all there, to, to stay at the table, to, to work out um, a workable bill that would actually regulate diesel engines in Oregon. And... That was not just a huge breakthrough for Oregon. We were the only the second state in the nation to establish any diesel engine standards. So I'm, I'm really proud of the way that we've formed our work to bring folks together and find where we share mm-hmm. some, you know, find those common ground areas that we can start from. Mm. And then 
work out the solutions. As you think about your past successes, how will you then translate your organizing experience into getting things done at Metro? What would be your priorities as a Metro counselor? So again, I, you know, I think priorities right now are all defined by moving through this crisis Mm -hmm. and how we get to the other side of it. Um, This seat, um, you know, whoever wins and when I win this seat, you know, it'll be January, 2021. um, And it's hard to know what is, is going to be the priority. But I think it's going to be the same methodology. I think that my instincts are to always bring folks together. And I think whether it's this workforce um, issue and restoring the economy, we're really going to be looking to our partners um, in community-based organizations who are really taking care of these displaced workers and, and taking care of the populations that are most impacted, which unfortunately, even with Metro employees, breaks along lines of race and class. Um, we're going to be looking to our labor organizations. So I think it's going to be bringing about bringing the right voices into the table and hearing from everybody. But we also need to look to our business community as well and understand um, uh, their concerns and perspectives. Mm. My um, driving force when I first was coming was the transportation package. And I think that that is going to be another key issue where we need to be listening to, you know, we need to get to make a transportation package meet our climate goals. We have got to get reduced vehicle miles traveled in the region. We've got to get um, more people utilizing our public transportation system and more people choosing active transportation options. We have got to reduce driving in the region if we're going to meet any of the climate carbon reduction goals. And so we need to make sure that TriMet and and other leaders and, and municipalities are explaining to us what they need to make those outcomes happen. So I think, again, it's going to be about convening um, uh, voices to the table, listening, learning a lot about best practices, trying to create some consensus around um, what are the most effective ways to meet those goals, and, and then about strong implementation with accountability, that we create a transparent and, um, and clear oversight of whether or not what we are implementing is meet, uh, reaching those goals. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned transportation is a, the single biggest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution. So as you think about your model for organizing and how you've accomplished things up to this point, what do you think uh, a campaign or an effort looks like to curb automobile use in the region? First and foremost, it's giving people a better option mm-hmm. to not use their car. Um, you know, I know that uh, that um, the 2017 Climate Action Plan that was developed by Multnomah County and and uh, the City of Portland um, saw that they were going to um, the only way to meet the 2050 goal of reducing you know carbon emissions by 80 percent below 90 le- 1990 levels was going to be to um, uh, create uh, recommendations and create abilities for 80% reductions of, you know, use of vehicles in our neighborhoods and communities. 
And so there's a whole bunch of ideas that we could bring to the table to help make that happen. But you have to be really hearing and understanding every community what the, the barriers are, because in some places, those barriers are, are pure and simple safety. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the issues of, you know, we want walkable neighborhoods and there's too many neighborhoods that don't have sidewalks. Or we want, you know, people to use their their bikes more as a reasonable form of transportation and there's just not enough protected bike lanes where that's a safe option for people. Mm-hmm. So part of it I think is really, um, and then, you know, the big elephant in the room is TriMet, um, you know, looking at TriMet and holding it more accountable for a metric of ridership increase. Um, you know, TriMet's been sort of anemic in its, in its commitment to increasing ridership. And I, there is no way we can meet our climate goals. There's no way we can get 80% less vehicle miles traveled in automobiles without a public transportation system that is capable and offers people a, 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 a viable option as another choice for driving your car. And that means that, you know, frequency of service, dependability of service, service getting you where you want it to go, you know, the speed of, you know, how fast you can get to someplace as an alternative to driving your car. Mm-hmm. All those things need to be built into any project that TriMet is doing. And we need to move TriMet from, you know, what is projected to be about a 2%, you know, 2 to 3% growth, ridership growth rate over the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. That that doesn't even, you know, that does not even keep up with, you know, anything close to what our population growth is expected. And if, and if we don't have TriMet grow as a bigger part of transportation options for folks, there's just no way we the population growth that's anticipated will increase um, vehicles on the road. It will increase pollution. It will increase our carbon um, contributions. So TriMet has really got to be held accountable for increasing ridership and no project should be brought to the table without a clear demonstration of how it's going to do that, how it's going to create. Because there's been a whole bunch of really big, fancy, expensive TriMet projects that haven't actually increased ridership at all. And I just don't think that can be acceptable to meet our carbon um, need, you know, our carbon reduction needs in the next two decades. Yeah. I recently read your interview on bikeportland.org. You mentioned the idea of Metro taking over TriMet or managing TriMet. Is that something that is a, sort of a passing idea for you or something that you really want to fight for to see happen? I want to fight hard for Metro to um, take over authority and, and the, the accountability of TriMet over and and have authority above its unelected board um and so i think it's i think it absolutely is time for that conversation to happen um about metro's authority and ability to take over trimet and and that yes i i absolutely think we need to push that conversation hard and bring it to the front um, to figure out how to have trimet have more accountability to match the needs of the region we need, if we're going to hit these, you know, ambitious but necessary decarbonization of our transportation system, TriMet has to be part of that. We need a world-class mm-hmm. transportation system then. 
And what does that mean? And, and we're not even close. I mean, TriMet has lagged for too many years. We've been the dirtiest fleet on the West Coast of any major public transportation system for decades. You know, they, they've continued to lag and not be up to merit of being a world-class sustainable city, a part of that, a part of that um, equation. So, yeah, I, I think it's time. I think it's absolutely time for TriMet to come in line with the values of the region. And the values of the region are really demonstrated by the, you know, the elected people that are representing it. And I think that TriMet is really out of step with that. Mm. And this is a crowded field with, uh, with very strong candidates. As we wrap up, what makes you the best candidate for the counselor position in District 5 at Metro? Well, thank you for the opportunity to, to talk today. And I, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's because I have a, a track record of success. I've built consensus through strong coalitions of people and organizations. And I've done that through, because I work, I've always identified what we're working for, not just what we're working against. Um, so that has allowed, I think, the coalition work that, that I've been able to lead um, to do really important things um, because we've really been able to break down traditional divisions. Um, because if you're only working against something, then there's always, you stay in opposition and it's really difficult to get something done. So I'm really excited to bring that, that track record of success that I'm both, a, you know, I'm an outsider. I was a political outsider. I was a systems outsider. But I became very effective within the system, whether it was, you know, um, a regulatory system or the state legislature because of the strength of those authentic coalitions and the ability to bring along consensus and bring along a willingness to work together um, with a broad coalition. And so I think I'm, I'm very excited about the opportunity that Metro provides us to do important work on the climate, to do important work in our communities through affordable housing. And the next big opportunity and challenge with this this um, getting our workforce and getting our economy back on its feet in the next you know after this crisis abates and I'm just really excited to bring those same principles of bringing important coalitions people who represent community really bring authentic voices into the decision making and get through the intractable divisions and actually come up with outcomes mm. Mary thank you so much for joining us this morning Thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure to be on X-Ray. It's my favorite radio station. <laughs> well, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Stay well and uh, best of luck in your campaign. You too. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Again, that's Mary Pivato. She's a candidate for Metro District 5. You can find out more at pivotoformetro.com. That's P-E-V-E-T-O for F-O-R, metro.com. We appreciate Mary jumping in this morning. The Oregon primary, again, it's scheduled for May 19th. Just a quick reminder, April 28th is the voter registration deadline in Oregon, and ballots are going to start hitting mailboxes April 22nd, just in a few weeks.